All right, we're back. That is some odd music I chose yeah, today. That's cool. It's, I guess, good. Now bring your mic a little bit. I know. I, I was in my slouch position. I, I wish I, people could see how I'm, how I straight lounge. Like over a here. Roman. I know. Like a Roman. All right. Now, uh, well, during the music, we were talking a little bit about how we want to break up this conversation. I thought you had a good idea, which is, you know, what are the, what are the positive economic positives of globalism, economic positives of economic nationalism, and also on the cultural way and can they be kind of separated because i was saying i i feel like some economic nationalism is could be good you know and let me just outline how it could be good you know if i told you in 2015 that my goal as a candidate was to bring jobs back to america and um also perhaps reduce you know pollution in the world and take the wealth that was concentrated in New York and Miami and Los Angeles or whatever those big cities are and spread it into the heartland, I think you would say what? Sign me up. Sign me up. So in a lot of ways, that's economic nationalism, right? Is leveraging tariffs to basically attempt to do that. And yet I feel like the economic nationalism has been painted with the same brush as cultural nationalism, as like a sinister force that's looking to undermine the everything that's good and light in the world. And this really concerns me because it makes me feel like, well, obviously there's a, like a, there is an agenda against something that in of itself isn't, we can argue whether tariffs will work. We can argue about what tariffs might achieve. But to say that tariffs are in themselves a sinister force is just strikes me as odd. They're a tool. They're an economic leverage tool. Now, it wouldn't be the first time. Because if you look at American history, tariffs oh, is a ter- massive yeah. subject in Huge. American history. And, you know, the South hated tariffs during, uh, you know, the antebellum period and, and leading up to the Civil War. and almost caused succession battles. And Hamilton was looking to protect domestic manufacturing and create a military and all these things. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you, what do you think are the better parts of global economic policy? Okay. So... I think that what we were talking about before, there's two ways to really look at this. You can either see it as the you know expansion of globalism into in, in the expansion of markets globally. And when I say expansion of global you know markets globally, I'm not just talking about the the biggest companies uh, and you know Nike making another manufacturing plant and exploiting work in Indonesia or other, you know or something like that. I'm talking about um, just the idea of uh, business, you know, expanding into the roots and foundations of a lot of different, a lot of different places, a lot of different countries. Um, so you can look at it one way as the. And you be- see that as a positive. I see that. No, I don't see this part. I see the. If you have that, you usually have the big businesses that are leading the way, and you know the jobs are being outsourced into different countries, and they're perpetuating this idea of exploiting work. So there's an exaggeration of exploiting work. But there's also the democratization of some of these market ideas and market principles that is that is even it can even come from a big company. You know, I went to um I was in uh I'm trying to think. I was in Lebanon, right? I was in Beirut last last summer. You know how I got around? Uber. Mm-hmm. I got into a car, I had the same app that I used in America, and there was a driver 
that I saw his face and I saw his license plate and I saw the ratings that he had and it was the same structure, but and Uber's making money off of this guy and he's making money off of the structured system. So let me just wait a second here. Mm-hmm. Because I'm trying to understand whether you're... Is that a positive? I think that that would be a positive. Okay, I would, so I would I'm going to cha- really challenge that for a second. Yeah, for you sure. Know, I mean, this is, this is a pretty controversial statement, but... I, I think so. Uh, you especially know, for workers and in the, in, in the, well, the rights so of them the and the kind of the... Um, the are they employees? Are they contracts? I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about extra money in this mm-hmm. guy's pocket. Yeah, yeah. But okay, so I think that's... What I'm hearing is the ease of use to you, who are in a very narrow demographic of empowerment. Let me finish. Okay. And things that you would object to in America are okay over there because Uber has been a total um, game changer over here and in some ways highly negative. And we're seeing that, you know, there was a cabbie who shot himself at City Hall in New York because it's ruined the cab industry and those cabbies have all their savings and medallions and et cetera. And also what seemingly like Uber and so many of these corporations do is the first two years you, you can make a lot of money at it and then they just start squeezing you like a lemon. And so it is interesting to me that someone like yourself – now, mm-hmm. I'm not going to say you're an anti-corporate person, but I would say that you well are skeptical. Capitalist. And you're skeptical of corporations in America. I don't see mm-hmm. how Uber – Yeah, I am. I mean I get the, that it's optimizing – I get that there's an efficiency to Uber. There's just no question to it, and that is its power. Um, but now you have Uber in Lebanon. Now the character of Beirut is now more uniform, so that gets into the cultural aspect, right? Because I would bemoan that. Let me just pause just for a second and say I am so sick of taking vacations to the same city. You know, because if you go to New York or you go to Boston or Portland, Maine or Portland, Oregon or Miami or Los Angeles, I don't really go abroad you're basically in the same open-air shopping mall with the same stores, the same chocolate croissants and stuff like that. There's The sense of adventure is gone. You'd have a much bigger adventure going to northern Mississippi and going to a Waffle House. Oh, going, yeah. It was just well, in north and south Carolina. Yeah. Oof. And so, I mean, in terms of just like actually seeing the world, you know, we seem to be hopping from one lily pad to another. So your Uber in Beirut, I see it. I get why that's really efficient, and hopefully that guy's making money. He would have been making money anyway, right? Because Not as much. You don't think so? No. Why? If I were to take a, um, and I did on some occasions when I was with uh, my friends that actually live in Beirut, flagging down a taxi. One, safety. I mean, you got to think about the entire structure that is behind this Uber, right? Um and again, it's not just for convenience of me. That gives an opportunity to an individual in that, um, in that scenario to download an app, scan their license plate or do whatever you want, and immediately start going to work. There's no red tape. You don't have to know anybody. You don't have to know so-and-so's uncle to start working there. And then, if you think about this, I get out at – and I go into some pretty dodgy places when I, when I um, travel – First night, I started just walking, just going down side alleys. I ended up at this okay. place. I got I videos. I'm going to show you these videos, this. okay? I don't um, think anybody with, wants to know why you're seeking but out. This is, but this comes into play alleys. because, okay, so I went to a, um, I went to this kind of like hookah restaurant type thing, right? Kind of a dingy place. Very, very small. Probably the size of this room right here. Did you find um, it on Yelp? No, I just literally started walking. Literally started that walking. Was a, a dig. Uh, oh. <laughs> 
Well, they have that too, and that's another. It's, that's another yeah. global or uh, another uh, app. Actually, I hate Yelp, but um, but I sat there all night smoking hookah with these guys and everything. I can't, I think it came out to about four dollars, five dollars, to take one Uber from from uh, a from the National Museum in town to my from my place that I was staying was like eight bucks, ten bucks. Okay, so that's good, and someone's making a lot of money now, and then everyone's going to switch to Uber, and then Uber is going to start squeezing those drivers like a lemon because that's what they I don't know ex- all done. the economics of it, and I'm I've using actually, Uber. I've and actually I'm... looked into Uber because I thought maybe I would do that. It's, it's, it's less and less a good deal. I remember when Uber came out. I mean, people were making big money. And in this gig economy, that's what happens. You know, they like the headlines where people are making a lot of money. I mean, even the uniformity alone is a little depressing to me. You know, Beirut becomes like every other city with all of its same apps. And we're basically walking through different temperature rooms at at a certain point. And this is where economic globalism and cultural globalism gets. It's interesting because on one level, on the best level, we think of cultural globalism as diversity. Right. That's like that's like the goal. Yeah. Like you get all of this like cool different music and different food. And on another level, cultural globalism is a un it makes everything really uniform in the worst <laughs> yeah. kind of way. But I think it's in the best kind of way. Are you getting your experience so you know, when I was in Beirut, just using it as an example, I wasn't getting my global experience out of my taxi and Uber rides. You could have been kidnapped by Hezbollah, and then you would have had a story. Actually, I was in Hezbollah region. I went to a mosque, and it was uh, Hezbollah mosque. Yeah, well, they're legitimate. And they're... I got there in an Uber. Yeah, you got there in an Uber. I mean, Actually, I was on a bus, but... I don't know. I guess there's... You Listen, you're much more the world traveler than I am, but there's part of me that is concerned that this kind of stuff will make uh, everything kind of uniform in the world, and... That's strange. Well, you already see that. Coca-Cola. Go to any country and you you can get a Coca-Cola. And you know the consistency has got to be, you know, maybe there's a Mexican glass bottle and it tastes a little different. But there's, I mean, global, there are, I don't think you will ever be able to, and I would not want to take away that global consistency in product because that, those are the things that people can go to that are a little bit more, like I said, consistent and safe and and they know what they're getting. (sighs) I just but there's see, also this is, it's just like watching someone. It's like the Raiders of the Lost Ark where they melt at the end. I'm like watching you <laughs> melt into like uh, calisthenics to kind of justify this. Let me tell you, I was a tour guide in New York City for eight years, and that's what people wanted to do. They wa- they were in Times Square, and they wanted to. A lot of them wanted to go to. I don't know what you know the Olive Garden. Yeah, and listen, I understand, and I have con- compassion. I can say, look, these people, you know, this is already enough for them. The city's already enough. I'm, it's not for me to judge that they want to go to the Olive Garden. But, there's but you're going to judge. Be, it just seems like a really missed opportunity. It yeah, seems like a huge missed opportunity to go find uh, an Italian restaurant on a side street. Yeah, it does. But at the same time, there's a consistency in that Olive yeah. Garden. Right. And there's a consistency, and that's and the that's problem. the beauty of capitalism, right there, my friend. <laughs> if everybody yes. said screw the Olive Garden, then the Olive Garden would go out of business. Okay. I, but here's my problem: is that there's no one, <laughs> there's literally no one in the world. Well, I don't know about this. There's very few people who find euphoria and transcendence in an Olive Garden, but 
it's good enough. Safety it's good enough comfort. for him and safety and comfort. But this is the I'm just so surprised to hear you make this argument because I get it and I get why uniformity and something you can count on is so useful, especially and especially. And let me just point this out mm-hmm. this, because I'm just thinking this right now. When all that's left are some very inconsistent players, right? The bigger the corporations get, the more hegemony they have. Going to an off-market coffee place, you're like, wait, this is not going to be good. You know, I'm going to go to Starbucks because this place is barely surviving and everything's going downhill and their coffee's from yesterday, whatever it is. So that actually, the power of the uniformity actually starts crushing Comfort and crushing. And yeah. Okay, but was that our goal here? Comfort, Comfort safety, safety, consistency. I think that that's what a global like a, a global identity is doing. I think okay, that you're so providing those again, <laughs> This is what's hard. That's a positive. It's a positive to a certain extent because mm-hmm. that that could easily become a facade in which you're going to just totally So even with Uber, I mean Uber has its globalist expansion has a lot of what you were saying has a lot of exploitive um exploitative um like mannerisms inside of it. It's the same thing with McDonald's. McDonald's is a global company. Um, Nestle is a global company that takes and siphons water from local communities. It's so you funny, can get these, that. these examples you're using are funny. I feel like this is 1958. <laughs> Coca-Cola, <laughs> McDonald's, Nestle. You know, these are all, this is like globalism part one. You know, it's like yeah. Cold War. You're talking about, because no one drinks Coca-Cola around here anyway. I mean, they do <laughs> in some parts the of the United States, but. They don't. You don't see Coca Cola. None of our students drink Coca Cola, do they? I never see that. Yeah, but we're in Northampton. Well, okay. I mean, yeah, but you I mean, have I a wonder. more health conscious society. You and that's the exact. I mean, now you're talking about the another form of exploitation is the you know socioeconomic circumstances that people find themselves in. Uh, individuals in lower so you know lower socioeconomic circumstances are more predisposed to, to go to those global globalist tendencies like the fast food restaurants and the unhealthy food yeah, and yeah. things like that in the coca-colas they're having their problems the middle east has big problems with obesity now because of fast food chains you know and, and you can make the argument that they'll move past it like it's a, it's like a plague of a kind and then they'll their consciousness will grow it'll be enough of a problem but like big problems is a vice documentary on I think Qatar has just huge problems with this, with the food stuff, with the fast food stuff. Yeah. So again, there's an example where economic globalism is spreading, not the, not the, not kale, you know, but the kind of a lot of insidious, addictive stuff around the world. So here's the thing, and this is what I'm puzzled about. You know, if globalism has become, I think for a lot of people, almost like an anchor point for what is good. And yet there's that. What we just talked about, which is that it's America pushing products around the world that we don't necessarily want here, particularly. You have, in my opinion, a big problem, which is the uniformity problem, that things become uniform. The world becomes a uniform place with very few players. You have an oligarchy of corporations, okay? That's also a big problem. You have the outsourcing of jobs from the United States. I mean, how has this become a soft and cozy thing that we that so many people embrace? Because it sounds bad. If I were to take a time machine back to 2005 or 1995 and I presented this picture and I'd say, this is what most people are embracing with their TV commercials with the ukulele in the background. 
I think a lot of people would be like, what happened? <laughs> like, really? That's, that's what become happened? what happened. That's become the kind of rallying cry because that's. Yeah, but I think on the books, you got to take out that um, outsourcing part. I think that, you know, I watched the Democratic de- debate recently. I'm saying recently because it's pre recorded, but last night. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they're talking about getting jobs back here. They're talking about, they're, no one's talking about pro outsource in the globalist, I wonder, in the glo- who, globalist scenario. I, uh, I, because it's very unpopular, but I wonder how serious they are. It comes down to this, okay? I it's bet a philosophical. Yeah, none of them support tariffs. Yeah. I mean, because that's how you do it. Okay. Uh, I'm not, I don't. How else do you do see, it? See, this is the thing. I'm not, and I don't want to, I don't want to get too into tariffs because I'm not, a t- you know, it's, it's a very complicated situation and I need to get more educated on that. It was just like it last night in the debate where, when they were talking about, you know, a mic, a, you know, public healthcare system, private healthcare system, or a mixture of both, and to what degree? And I was like, oh well, kind of everybody needs healthcare. I know that, you know. So it's like, um, in the nationalist of me, uh, outsourcing is bad, you know. But it comes down to a a fundamental thought of humankind, right? So it's like, okay, is outsource outsourcing is bad to me as an American? But outsourcing is very good to another individual in a country. Now you can no, argue all day, every too. day. Oh, I think it's. Oh yeah, it's it, well, it I be good for me. I actually think that yeah. both of us benefit from outsourcing and globalism. That in our like higher mind, we would embrace jobs coming back. But in our daily grind and our seeking of convenience, we're both economic globalists. Actually, I would argue. Oh yeah, I mean I think I mean, that's why the reality. I, why I can shop at Walmart, you know. Yeah. I mean I I I know this about my I I know that about myself. I'm just being pragmatic about the situation, and you know at the same in the same vein I go overseas and help you know children in other countries, and then all of a sudden it's like oh yeah I come back here and buy this you know cheaply made Chinese product or you know yeah right. it's it's, it's a, a very big country yeah it's a, it's a very big. Um, it, but it's hard to it's hard to see that explicitly. I mean, it's just so behind the scenes of you know, you know, it's even when it says "Made in China" or something like that on it, it's like it's not going through anybody's mind, you know, or the the, the it, it is on some people's minds, but it's it's hard to kind of practice that every single day, yeah, and not be part of a um, a society that welcomes that globalist outsourcing. We have to start our cult. It's what we have to do. <laughs> I mean, seriously. I mean, this is the answer to all our problems. Well, what do we do? Belief system, work. Okay. Yep. We, we, the two is, we go back to Antelope, Oregon and start that city again. Oh, yeah. That's the houses what are we probably do. cheap. Yeah. We, we go back. We don't wear red. We wear orange or whatever. Orange van. I already got it. You have Vanessa. Let's go. And we go there and we, because it would, we'd be engaged. We'd have some kind of belief system rolling. We'd have plenty of work. For everybody, we could keep it kind of homegrown, and you know, it would be it would be an existence of a kind. We can have but a it's coke machine. It's interesting to me that you suddenly, <laughs> you, the all-knowing Whalen, throws <laughs> up the white flag when tariffs get mentioned. You uh, know? I, but I mean, there's so many things that you could say. Okay, here's a, here's a kind of a globalist perspective here. Then um, everybody's all up in arms when jobs are. When those jobs go to you know outsourced and are cheaper overseas, please and everything. don't talk about automation right now. I'm not talking about automation. Okay. 
This is actually kind of dark. I'm being a little cynical right now. Um, What of the fields of rotting produce in the South, uh, because of the lack of immigrant work that is essentially, that's outsourced work, but it's being sourced here. You know what I'm saying? So it's like the, all of these um, these southern agricultural and probably conservative leaning uh, companies that are benefiting from this outsourcing and this global. It's I, I don't know where I'm going with this, but do you understand what I'm saying? It's like we're even when even when presented with the, that outsourcing here, it gets a little. And I'm, I'm not saying I wholeheartedly think that it's a, a very bad system. And, yeah. it's, and it's it's horrible that we would have individuals come here and work for cheaper and labor and toil in the fields. Saying that straight up. But the, the devil's advocate in, the, in that cynicism, what is, what is the difference between that? And there's a lot of our economy that, that thrives off of this. You know, no doubt. There is a lot of our, well, the a lot of produce too. that well, you're getting. Well, not just the produce. I mean, in, in the big oh, cities. Oh, yeah. And it, it, yeah, it definitely in urban centers as well. What you have with illegal immigration is you have leverage over labor. Because if you're illegal, then your rights are really not nearly as protected. And the wage I can give you is, is really much less. I agree with you. It's a kind of outsourcing. You know, it's interesting. You've studied the Roman Empire and the American Empire, and of course, there's really is striking, striking similarities there. I think much more yeah. than other empires. Um, and we're in a very Roman moment, of course, as well. You know, you have a kind of, you know, but Caesar was a populist. You know, he was he was an educated populist, and he was he was quite subtle and refined. But he was a populist revolutionary, actually. And one way to see illegal immigration is that it's, it's like Roman slavery. It's, it's a way in which America goes around to its neighbors and disrupts their economy for its own use. And that sends populations towards the center of the empire where they can be— Which is then it's leveraged in doing so. Yeah. No. And so seen that way, it's like— you know, illegal immigration is only existing because of desperation caused by the American empire, and it benefits, the American empire benefits, not morally, not psychically, not spiritually, but economically, from these displaced populations. And, and is, you yeah. don't even have to transport people. And it incentivizes the idea that it's a global economy, but it's not a global identity. Because the, glo- the minute that you have a global identity and you're in harmony as individuals, you lose that nationalist, the, the benefits of us being one of the top countries in the world as nationalists. Hmm. Because, oh, if everybody, you know, you see this time and time again when there's an earthquake or there's a you know, natural disaster or there's um, a, even a terrorist attack in another country. Um, there's, always, there's always kind of an uproar of, you know, if this was X, Y, or Z country or if this was X, Y, or Z individuals, there would be, a, there would be mourning m- more of a loss. You know, the um, uh, cathedral in France burns down, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars go to that. But, you know, it's, it's if everybody is equal in the world, then it evens the playing field and it's hard that's hard to stomach when you're on when you're on top. Yeah, I don't think obviously it's not and I, I think from this conversation 
I'm getting a very uh, funhouse mirror effect here that yeah. we're all kind of trapped in all of these reflections and shadows and stuff like that. And we're kind of, our bodies are composed of all of these different aspects of what we're benefiting from. So it becomes almost impossible to kind of de-mesh or to really see like, wait, wait a second. Well, what's, how is my economic perspective fueling my cultural perspective and vice versa? How are these things driving me to the politics that I'm choosing? I guess it's very hard to say. Uh, my wish is that people would see it in the cold light of day as much as possible. Uh, that's not our tradition in America particularly. No, 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 no. Our tradition is to kind of put all kinds of gloss. And I don't know if that's just an American thing, but it's, it's, it is an American thing. And so it's be, but the problem with that is it becomes very hard to see things for what they are. And then, yeah. and then if you can't see things for what they are, then it's very hard to remedy anything. And, and people are pointing fingers and taking high roads. And it's just like, wait a second, wait a second. Like, what is it? What is your economic relationship to the world? How do you benefit from these things? How does that shape your attitude? It's okay that it does. You know, it's okay that it does, but let's be honest. You, you know, if you have a no blood for oil bumper sticker, there's an irony in that that's just yeah. huge. Right? Sebastian Younger talks about that in Tribe. It's just like, I can't, that's on the back of a car, okay? Like, we can do that. We can do no blood for oil, but we all have to sit down and do the math of what that looks like. Because if gas goes up to $7 a gallon, it's going to be highly disruptive. Let's yeah. be honest about it. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I get... What sacrifices are you going to make for another individual that you... It all comes down to... And this is like war. This is... Um, this is... Everything comes down to, to um, uh, ge- geographical proximity, how yeah. close you are to an individual, uh, and um, time proximity, how close those events in which are happening are affecting you and you're relating to them yeah and if you are removed from either of those then you're not going to have the incentive that it needs to take in order to not get an iphone there's people there's individuals throwing themselves off of buildings at foxconn and i have a, i have an iphone yeah. and i know that i've read articles it's crazy you know it's absolutely insane it really is. I think that, you know, it's interesting. Stoicism took root in the Roman Empire because it had gotten so vast that it was incomprehensible. And so a group of people started embracing Stoicism almost to just say, I can't, I can't do all these calculations anymore. I, it's beyond me. It's beyond my understanding. Now, that could sound like a cop-out. But it is a result of something where everything is just overloaded. And now, of course, we're dealing with What's true, you know, that, that that whole vortex of Mark Zuckerberg's face being manipulated. I don't know if you saw that, but someone was able to do it oh, pretty the effective. Oh, deep, um, the deep fakes. Yeah, yeah. these deep fakes. And you're just like, I got I to gotta find a, a, a lifesaver and kind of cling to it. Um, that's also an aspect of globalism, right, is information overload potentially. Like the, this big, oh, yeah. broad... You know, of course, the Internet's a huge part of that. The end of the Cold War is a big part of that. But that is another potentially negative aspect of globalism. There's a positive, too, right? Because, again, all this awesome cultural stuff, this cultural exchange, I mean, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. You know, I can process Thai food and Cambodian music, like, on my own time. But 
the information overload is is also another injury to the psyche, I think. Yeah. I think it comes down to every single thing that we've talked about has two sides of the coin. And it's um it's the one that you're it's w- the one that your society is introduced to and the way that you personally reconcile that within yourself. Yeah. And yeah, I don't I I don't I honestly don't know an answer. Like I just it's and I don't know if if anybody really wants to find out that answer. Because the minute that you start digging, there was um I read an uh, article um recently and this happened a while ago, but a woman had a, found a purse. She opened the purse, and there was a letter in Chinese. And then when translated, it was like, I work in horrible conditions in mm. a factory and everything. Please help me. This is my address. This is my name. This, that, and the other thing. Mm. The same person that that made that purse, that, that this, you, you're touching that, that fabric that mm. somebody's pain had experienced. And I don't think that we really truly understand each other as human beings. But if you were to go through that and look at my sandals or my Reebok uh, shorts that I have on, or like I said, my iPhone, you don't want to see those truths. Because the truths are going to be really, really intense. But okay, so maybe you do though. Because if it really brought you around to doing the best that you could... I think it'd be worthwhile. I think I know families that really try hard. And I mean, I'm, part of me is like, uh, good luck. And then part of me is like, you know what? There's probably an integrity there that is going to wash through their kids and all that stuff. Like, I do believe in blowback. All the Amazon boxes coming in my house, I feel like will be carried by generations hence. You know, so I wonder if you don't want to know. Yeah, but also there's a certain irony to say that I am only going to shop local. I am only going to uh, buy clothes made uh, locally or from this, that, or the other thing. Because you know why? Because those clothes are way more expensive. And that food is way more expensive. So you need to be at a, a point of privilege in your life economically to be able to say that I'm going to uh, break out of these chains. And not a lot of people can do that. Or less clothes, less food. True. You know, two outfits, three outfits. I mean, there are other countries that do it this way. We will never do that. All right, listen, before I get... I'm starting to break into a cold sweat here. (laughs) We we got dark on this one, huh? We got dark. It's interesting. Yeah. Now, on a lighter note... You have stuff planned for the summer. I have stuff planned for the summer. Tell us a little bit about what you're going to do. Oh, man. Saturday, I'm getting on a plane with uh, 17 students. We're going to Ecuador for two weeks and uh, doing a service learning trip. Are you the only adult on that trip? No. 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 Uh, there's two individuals in country, and then there's another uh, teacher from Springfield. Okay, And cool. uh, Yeah, it's going to be super cool. We're doing a little bit of lecture, a little bit of teaching, a little bit of a community service project. It's gonna be. It's gonna be really cool. That's like ten days. Uh, fourteen. Fourteen yeah. days. Straight. Okay. Straight two weeks. And what else you got? Uh, coming back, doing some road tripping. Um, You're working a camp in Maine. Going to going Maine. Yep. yep. Volunteer to camp up there. Yep. All right. Fifteenth year doing it. That's cool. Yeah. Wow. How old are you? Thirty-two. It's good. I'm 32. waiting for it to be half of my life. I've been going to this thing. That's that's next the, year. That's uh, well, the maybe the year yeah, after or something after like that. that. What are you doing? 
Well, you know, up and around, maybe a few small trips, some camping and stuff like that. I get to like, for the radio show, I've got to get more stuff. I'm, I'm burning through my treasure chest, so I have to start working on that. Yeah. But we'll, um, we'll reunite towards the end of the summer, hopefully. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to get on social media, and that's yep. just huge. And we got to play some more tennis. Uh, he did, he did, noticed that he didn't talk about tennis today. That's true. Didn't I didn't talk not, about tennis. I have to say, I think you were better than me, and Jonesy was better than both of us. Well, so this is this is the um, this is the thing. When we play racquetball, you can stand in that center, and you Check really work. You really work the space. I work the space. Well, I so, know it. I do think that if we kept playing, we'd be like. I and, wasn't embarrassing. No, not at all. Yeah. And, but in doubles, doubles, I think is where is is where you shine, because yeah. then I run around like a little monkey. Yes. Like. Just like the show. Just like the radio show. All right, folks, we're going to go out. Enjoy your Sunday.